It's time to start the CareCast, brought to you by the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit at Mayo Clinic. I am Victor Montori, your host for this last uh, CareCast uh, of uh, this first season. And uh, it is an amazing uh, opportunity that we have to finish the CareCast with Professor Carl May. Um, there is no way of doing justice to Carl in an introduction that would not take all the time of the CareCast. And so, I, I, you know, and uh, uh, Carl and I have a wonderful collaborative uh, relationship in our research. And so I've been thinking about how best to introduce Carl to all of you. And uh, first of all, he's a, uh, a sociologist. Um, uh, in, in what matters to our conversation, he's a sociologist of, um, that has focused on, the, um, uh, on a couple of areas that matter tremendously. One is the normalization of innovations in healthcare. Um, and the second one is um, the theory of um, burden of treatment. He is at the London School of um, Hygiene in London, not you know that does the name, and um, uh, and uh, but because we are in full pandemic mode, uh, we are reaching him uh, in at home. Um, he's one of those few people who have felt at home at home during the pandemic, uh, and uh, it is lovely, Carl, to have you. Welcome to the Carecast. Thank you so much, Victor. It is lovely to be here, or to be there. Yes, uh, and, and to be together. Yeah. Um, uh, Carl is, is I, sh I should have also said that you're a survivor of the uh, Icelandic volcano um, yeah. disaster that um, had uh, one upside that we can t we, we know about, which is the opportunity to have trapped you in Rochester, Minnesota, surrounded by our colleagues of the care unit for a much longer than planned period. Um, but uh, that changed our lives, didn't it? Well, it changed all of our lives. Um, and um, yeah, no, that was um, actually a much better time than, um, uh, than then the, the the you know the description Icelandic volcano disaster might might have uh, um, might have suggested no that was really I it was just really good fun and the thing that I always remember is the just the warmth of the welcome from people who were saddled with me for yet another week and yet another week and who who didn't seem to tire of being friendly and polite. To me. <laughs> You make it easy. You make it easy, Carl. So the first question I always ask in these things is, how does how does uh, how did you become Carl May? Uh, well, I I became Carl May through a series of entirely unpredictable um, events. So I left school um, at sixteen, and I worked as a hospital porter and as a hospital cook. Um, and then I was a filing clerk for quite a long time in the Ministry of Agriculture in London. And um, uh, one day I got the opportunity to go to college. And um, that, that coincided um, 
with um, my being asked to spend um, three weeks at the government file storage facility at Hayes um, trying to find a lost document in 16 miles of shelving. Um, and so I resigned and went to college. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, uh, I discovered um, uh, I, I, I kind of intended to be a lawyer um, uh, I was very interested in international relations and I was very interested in the ways in which um, uh, um, the, the ways in which governments regulate each other. Where these interests came from, I'm never, I've never been quite sure, but they, they, they were there and I thought, well, that'd be an interesting thing to do. And on my second day in college, um, uh, 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 one of the, the lecturers approached me and he said, Carly said, have you thought about not doing law? And I said, well, no, I haven't thought about not doing law. Um, why do you ask? He said, because he said, I think you'd be a really good sociologist. <laughs> and there you are. It turned out he was right um, to some degree. Um, and I just, I just really enjoyed what I was doing. And, I think, you know, we're, we're, if, if you enjoy what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work. And so for a long time, no. um, uh, uh, nothing I did really ever felt as if I was working. It was, it was really interesting. I did a PhD at Edinburgh. Um, uh, I did a postdoc in psychiatry in Edinburgh. And then I had a series of lecturing jobs and... Uh, then again, quite by accident, and this really was an accident, um, I had um, knocked over a pint of milk in the kitchen of the, the university department that I was working in, and I was scrabbling around to mop it up. And I, there was an old newspaper sitting on, the, um, uh, on the, the table, and I was sort of using this to um, absorb a pool of milk. And in the middle of it, there was the, an advertisement for a full professor job at um, the University of Newcastle. So <laughs> I applied. And um, uh, uh, despite the fact that the vice chancellor of the university, who was chairing the interview, interview, actually fell asleep during the answer to one of my questions, there were 28 people on the interview board. There was no oxygen in the room. Um, uh, and he did drift off, um, but I, I was very surprised, and I, I got this got this appointment. And so, I think I, I think that was nine years after I graduated PhD, and I was a full professor. I was an inaugural professor in a in a faculty that had never had a professor of medical sociology before, and I just I just loved it, and um, uh, I have been equally fortunate to um, have wonderful friends to collaborate with. I, I, uh, um, I, I'm um, uh, sort of in a world where nothing is planned, you, you, there are some things you still have to work hard at. And one of those, I think, is maintaining and sustaining um, those sorts of collaborative relationships. Um, and, and also at the same time managing them as friendships and making them into something more than the sum of their parts because um, uh, 
I, I do know people who behave entirely instrumentally at work, um, but it, it's always struck me that they live very unsatisfying lives. Um, uh, unsatisfying work lives or unsatisfying lives total? Well, I, I can't speak to their lives beyond work, but, but certainly I can't imagine that um, if that's how they behave with their colleagues, I can't think that that's how they would not behave with other people in their lives. I can't so, imagine. So, so you, you've, you've, you are the product, yes, of chance. Sounds like you're the product of a visionary mentor who saw through the, you know, that uh, you could you could uh, illuminate or confuse things as a lawyer, or you can illuminate or confuse things as a, as a sociologist and decided that your path was that of sociology. And, um, and you went along with it. And then um, it sounds like your luck was also helped by paying attention to um, what you were mopping the floor with, um, which was a professorship offered. There's a metaphor there about, you know, crying on spilled milk and then mopping the floor with a professorship and and then people falling asleep and uh, next thing you know, you're a full professor. I mean, that's, uh, there's something there. Um, yeah, I, I, there's an awful lot of hard work underneath that. Of course. Well, that's I the mean, thing, isn't that, it? That's yes. the thing, isn't it? But yeah. that, that's so, why I say, if you love something, it doesn't always feel as if it's work. Yeah, just, I, I, I'm just going to close the blind because... Um, that's all right. That's all right. The um, the uh, one of the, one of the things about these things that you have to work hard. You said, I, you know, in addition to the scholarly work itself, the instrumental thing that you've mentioned is that you said you have to work hard at uh, at, at relationships and friendship, and um, that strikes me as one of the upsides of science. Right, is the notion that you do this. Um, you get to show up to work and work with people that you like, uh, work with people that um, get you, uh, get what you're trying to do, uh, that resonate with you, that build on what you're offering, that take the gift that you're offering and, and, uh, and give you other gifts back. And, and you are bigger, better, faster, smarter, clearer because of the, company you keep and uh, and the same they can say the same about there's that is not the picture that many people have of scientists uh and certainly social scientists you know one looks at some in some disciplines of social science and one sees these papers with a single author right and you go you know is this is what is this you know is this because i i agree with you that the fun part about science seems to be the fact that you are you have, you know, these incredible relationships. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think, I, I mean, I certainly have my share of single author papers. Um, I, I think I probably got ten or fifteen of them, and um, uh, I think over time, it, it's very easy to write a single author paper when you're early in your career and you've just done a PhD. I think mm. over time, and as one becomes more senior, then um, one's always working in big and quite intellectually diverse teams. Um, uh, and uh, I, I don't hold with the idea that um, uh, 
that you can just suddenly decide to to hijack all of those thoughts and work um, and and say that they're your own. I know it does happen. I know people do do it. Um, uh, but I think um, I, I, I think that denies the reality of the the work that we do. Mm. You know, it denies the reality. I mean, I've got a couple of pa papers now with patients as co-authors, and um, uh, uh, that kind of denies that that sort of accepts and acknowledges the reality of of the, the complex web of social relations that that we're involved in all the time. Uh, when, I, when I, you, I was just going to ask you when when you um, when you when you look at your when I look at your career the um, uh, one of the things that one sees is this um, uh, movement towards the production of theory. Um, many of us have had to write grants and write proposals and hold people accountable for to what extent their activities, their choices of experiments and, uh, and measures are theory informed or theory driven. Uh, but few of us have stopped to think about where, you know, what's the value of the series? Where do theories come from? How did you, how did you arrive, for instance, at normalization process theory, which has, has been a, a major contribution um, to, to healthcare and to our career? You're laughing, but it's, it, I'm, I'm being completely serious. I mean, for probably the, uh, you know, one of the few times during this, this conversation, but you know, I'm, it, it, it's, it's a, that's a phenomenal contribution, Carl. So how, how does one arrive at that? Um, uh, well, I think the answer is it's complicated, but the, the 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 Robert Merton, who was you know the the sort of doyen of American sociologists for about a thousand years, he 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 had this in one of his books. He's got a great footnote where he talks about theories springing fully formed from the minds of men, and. That is more or less, unless you're Richard Feynman and you're sitting in the canteen at Cornell watching people spinning plates and suddenly the theory of quantum electrodynamics arrives in your head. That's actually not how theories arrive. <laughs> so normalization process theory came out of about, I would guess, every study that I did and every PhD that I supervised over a period of about 10 years. And I, I walked away from these, these different studies looking at different areas of chronic disease management in primary care, genetic counselling in hospitals, the development um, and evaluation of telemedicine systems. So one of the great advantages of most of the jobs that I've had is um, uh, that I was the senior sociologist in a whole faculty. And so sociology was, and so most of the time, was the only sociologist um, uh, in a department. So sociology was what I says it was. And that, that gave me the opportunity to do a huge, and this is, I praise God that I worked in medicine and didn't go in other directions because I've had the opportunity to do a huge variety of work in many different contexts, 
without anybody ever saying, oh, well, you're a specialist. Uh, so I've been able to be a generalist sociologist who is interested in medicine and who then became interested in doctor-patient and nurse-patient interaction and who then became interested in how different kinds of health technologies shape clinical practice. So I, I, you know, that's, that's the background to my whole, my whole career. Um, uh, and I, I was struggling. I had a project with um, some good friends, people that I think you have met, um, Tracy Finch and um, uh, Francis Mayer and others, where we were, we were trying to understand how and why the National Health Service in Britain found it so difficult to adopt telemedicine systems. And um, uh, I was interviewing a, a, a junior doctor then, now a very senior um, emergency department, uh, professor of emergency medicine in the UK. Um, uh, and after the interview was finished, we, we were having a chat and a cup of coffee and sort of um, uh, just talking about the state of the health service, which is a sort of perpetual, perpetual conversation, isn't it? Um, and he said, he said, you know, Carl, he said, the thing about telemedicine is it doesn't work. The name tells you that it doesn't work. He said, because if it worked, it wouldn't be called telemedicine. It would just be called medicine. And in that moment that I suddenly... My, my head went back to um, uh, an undergraduate sociology course about um, uh, uh, Peter Berger and, Berger and Thomas Luckman's book, um, The Social Construction of Reality. And I, I realised, of course, that the essence of adoption and implementation is that the thing that is being adopted and implemented disappears from view. That, that actually it just becomes part of the normal routine of action in much the same way that I think almost no clinician now thinks twice about having a stethoscope. Um, I'm sure there are clinicians now that want powerful nuclear stethoscopes that, that cost millions of dollars and that require an enormous staff. But, but you know, the old-fashioned stethoscope... Um, um, uh, has been, you know, that's been going on for two two centuries. Everybody knows how to use it, and nobody thinks twice about it. Uh, and so that's that's really where the the kind of inspiration for normalization process theory came from. That one moment, but it would have been impossible for it to come from that one moment if I hadn't been involved in all of those other studies. And if I hadn't read um, uh, uh, Bertrand Luckman's treatise on the social construction of reality. So there's a sense in which fortune favours the, pre the prepared mind. You know, I, I say that, you know, nothing ever happens by, um, uh, by accident, really. Uh, you know, all of our accidents and serendipities um, uh, 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 are only visible to us if we, if we can see their implications. 
Well, there's, there's two other things, uh, Carol. One is that this conversation, this insight occurred in a conversation after you had finished the interview. So the planned work was over, right? Yeah. And, um, and so uh, if you had been of the kind that was very disciplined, you would have finished, let this person go, and off you go, and you would have yeah. missed that moment, right? So there's a, this goes back to your interesting cultivating relationships with people that probably led to that yeah. coffee and led to that opportunity, uh, I was fascinated by this man. I, he 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 had so much interesting to say about his work and the life, and and about the 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 sometimes very fleeting um, interactions he had with people in in the ER. Um, but the other thing that I must say is that that um, uh, I am not good at everything, and I am not a great interviewer. I'm actually not a great field researcher in in and. Uh, many of my colleagues will smile and nod at this news. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite good at interpreting data, qualitative data. Um, I'm not at all good at actually collecting it. Um, I, 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 you know, we all have we all have different strengths, and quite frankly, I find a lot of interviewing rather boring. Um, uh, 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 and um, uh, uh, it 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 doesn't suit me temperamentally, and it it's not something that I, I'm particularly skilled. I part, I think partly because as an interview progresses, I'm sort of building a, a sort of low level theory of what's going on, um, and then I want to test it rather than collect data, um, because. For me, theory is nothing more than explanation. That's all we're doing. When we make theories, we're creating explanations. Um, so, uh, or we're trying to build a better explanation for something. What, I've, I've, um, uh, I, in preparation for this interview, I told you that one of the uh, cringe moments of our interactions, at least to me, came in a delicious uh, dinner uh, that you and I had, well, with, uh, with her um, better, much better halves, um, right the, the night before Brexit, the vote. And, um, and we, had, we were enjoying incredible food and uh, great company. And I said this thing, which of course um, was extremely, you can use any adjective you want, I'll take them all. And I said, girl, why, why are you spending all this time doing this theory stuff? I mean, what's the value of it? And, uh, um, and yet here we are uh, finding the theoretical contributions you've made, having incredible practical application in the work that we do. Um, did you did you expect when you went into theory that you will have the impact that you've had? I had literally no idea. I, I if I had known how this was going to turn out, I would have been a lot more careful about how I did it. Um, uh, um, uh, I I had literally no idea. I I I I wrote the the, the first. The first NPT paper, which is sort of two thousand and six, I wrote that um, uh, for a seminar. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't sort of intend it to to go any further than a sort of expert seminar that was funded by the Arthritis Research Campaign about um, changing clinical practice. 
mm-hmm. but the reception that I got was so so enthusiastic that I sort of wrote it up and as a paper, and then I got asked to give it as a plenary at um, a, a, a big academic primary care conference in Europe, and I did that, and and then that work it it obviously filled a gap at that moment it it filled a gap um um and i think it was attractive to people because it was um based it was it was not at all philosophical it was it was grounded mm-hmm. in um empirical research um, often done independently of the theory building process. Um, uh, I so that I didn't have to to push too hard at the door to open it with people who were really looking. Who, there was a, a real need then. It's different now because there are about eight million theories of implementation. Um, uh, 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 but then there weren't. Um, uh, so people were looking for something that would take them away from diffusion of innovations theory, which was not helping them, um, uh, or away from uh, the theory of um, uh, the, uh, the, the theory of reasoned action. You know, Fishbein and Asian's work about intention, about intentions and um, uh, and behavioural norms and um, something that was a bit practical. So what, in a sense, we did was to describe practice, but then to um, uh, take it up a couple of notches and say um, that um, uh, these were the explanations for this stuff. Yeah, so orienting orienting people to this space and yeah. providing an explanation for success and yeah. failure yeah so and that and that seems to have worked and it um uh so we described and then um uh, as you know i had later on opportunities to go to the mayo clinic i had uh, at the same time opportunities to go to australia with into jane gunn's department in melbourne which was um uh, no less friendly um, or congenial than the Mayo Clinic, but um, was much closer to some pretty good vineyards. And um, uh, uh, so I, I had the opportunity to work with tremendous people around the world very quickly who who saw an opportunity with, um, with NPT. And then... Um, a series of grants and some of which were very small to continue to develop it. And then um, my partner in crime, Tracy Finch and Tim Rapley, who was um, a research fellow in my group in Newcastle. They're both now full professors at um, in, in Northumbria university at Newcastle. They, they put together a great um, bid for money to develop a, a set of quantitative instruments to measure these constructs. I, I'm, I'm never going. I'm never going to be a big statistical researcher because I'm very profoundly affected by number recognition dyslexia. So, in fact, I look at I look at numbers and it's just like looking at I don't know what grey. It's all grey. 
Um, well, it's, I'm glad that you're into words because that is, uh, you know, that, that helped. But one, one of the things that was attracted to me about MPT was the fact that it focused on the work that people did, you know, not what was in their minds or what we thought was in their minds or the explanations they gave after the fact, but what was observable and, um, and, and uh, what was it. The other thing that resonated with me about it is that he talked about collaboration. And, um, and just like you describe research as a very collaborative activity with friends uh, and so forth, the, the theory that you've developed also recognizes that same phenomenon of collaboration among people as the key, um, the key machine of implementation yeah. and normalization. And, and, um, and that also resonated with us because, you know, we, we've been working on, on shared decision-making and other things. And, and in, those, are, those are paradigms where we go from the self-management idea the motivation idea of patients mm -hmm. to the notion that care is a collaborative activity oh. in which patients and clinicians are working together to make it work, to make care fit, which of course is the theme of this conversation. So, mm -hmm. so that was very attractive to me. Did, was, do you think that your appreciation for this idea of people working together is, is a reflection of, you know, it came from your recognition that you were doing that as part of your research or is that a worldview that you bring with you and that allow you to see that and put it in your theory or that it really emerged from the, from the empirical work? I, I, well, I think it, it, these things come from, from multiple sources. So I have, I had actually as a junior civil servant been involved in implementing things. Um, uh, 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 nothing of value or importance But, but at the same time, I sort of had a sense of, of, of what you need to do to get something done. That I remembered that sometime after I began the project. Um, I think that this comes from having a sociological worldview, because mm. that says humans are social creatures. Mm. The, the, whole, the whole business of being human is about interacting with others and if we are denied the opportunity to interact with others terrible things happen to us so you know if you go to the supermax in marion and look at prisoners who are kept in a concrete box for 40 years um uh they're in a pretty terrible state mm. um, because they're completely denied opportunities for sociability but his in history we see very few Um, uh, very few big things that happen because of individual behavior change. We see lots of things that happen because of collective action and collaborative work. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but the mythology of discovery, the mythology of advancement is often told as, it, as, as the, his, the story or the history of usually a man uh, of, you know, that, 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 like you said, you know, saw it and uh, made it happen in the force of yeah. his will. Right. And um, there's this strong mythology of the individual making a difference. I think that's true. And, and I think that's because um, uh, uh, those sorts of narratives are hugely attractive and also because they're quite easy to tell. Well, I, I, we have some great evidence to, um, to the opposite. Um, um, 
uh, if you read um, the transcripts of JFK in the Oval Office during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's absolutely clear that he's making decisions. But what he has in front of him are an enormous team of people who are talking to him all the time. So these are actually, this is collaborative work and collective action at its best. I, uh, a book that I go back to again and again and again are the diaries of um, Lord Allenbrook, who was the field marshal in charge of the British Army during the Second World War. Uh, um, uh, almost nothing in these diaries is about him. It's all about him and other people. It's about his relationships with Winston Churchill or, Lord, you know, uh, Eisenhower or any of these people. Um, it's about the creation of a network of actors um, organised around very different versions of a common cause. Mm. Um, uh, 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 um, and we, in, in medical research and in health services research of different kinds, we neglect these wider kind of opportunities to to explore and understand behavior to our in our to our peril because we say all oh, these things only happen in medicine but mm. you only have to pick up a um a history book to see that they happen everywhere all the time so so when when one looks at um at, at your career then do you recognize a, a a principle or a set of values that has been pushing you forward yeah i do um Uh, I I think I, I I feel very strongly that behavior matters, and how we behave towards each other matters, and um, uh, I've so I have tried to um, behave well towards others, but also towards my work and towards the people that I work for. I think. I love what I do. I care about it very much. I care about the people that I work with very much. I've, I'm very fortunate that I have some fabulous, talented PhD students, and I have had many of those over quite a long time now, and some of them um, have become incredibly powerful researchers in their own right um, uh, with big, big research teams. I love mentoring. I love all of that stuff. Um, uh, but I, I, so my values are around trying to do the right thing. That that's not always an easy or painless process. You know that as well as I do. Um, uh, but trying to do the right thing in the context of collegiality and congeniality, um, uh, and. Uh, so I've I've also obviously had um, senior management roles in different different bits of different universities, and so I have encountered some of those difficult moments. But um, uh, uh, so I, I try to just do the right thing, but as I see it, not as anybody else sees it, <laughs> as I see it. But this is this this is also behavior towards. Uh, Be, you said behavior matters. So this was behavior towards towards the work, towards others, towards yourself. Yeah. yeah. Mm. 
um, uh, I, I, I had the, I had the great. I don't know whether it was the good fortune or the great misfortune to be um, assigned a leadership coach at, at one point in my in in my trajectory. <laughs> When, when I think it was thought by my employer that I might one day want to um, uh, to be in charge of something important. And um, uh, she was, it turned out that, that she was an exceptionally astute and interesting woman. And um, a coach. Yeah. Uh, and, and she sort of encouraged me to think a lot more about behavior and what was good and what was bad. And, uh, to be very clear about what I would tolerate from others, mm. um, uh, uh, what was acceptable or unacceptable, um, and I, I found those I found those conversations extremely useful at a time when, like a lot of people in in healthcare, in higher education, in any kind of organisation, um, I was confronted with. Um, people who were behaving in a very difficult and challenging way. Um, uh, and um, I, I was being pulled in several different directions. And that, that sort of that sort of helped me get back on track, really, in terms of what personal integrity means to me mm -hmm. at work. I think it's very easy to possess personal integrity when... Um, the mortgages of others don't depend on you. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I, I think um, uh, I think it becomes more difficult the more distributed your responsibilities are. Um, you know, there's always there's always an easy way out of lots of problems. Uh, so I've I've I've. I'm not going to suggest that I've suffered immeasurably for my art because obviously I haven't, but I, I, I have tried to behave well towards my data and behave well towards my colleagues and behave well towards myself in those, in those contexts. Yeah, well, it seems like uh, that's a uh, uh, has is is a good way. Of, in fact, uh, it resonates quite uh, strongly with our uh, in the career unit. We have this this set of uh, values that we make explicit uh, as part of our culture, uh, which is, you know, that we're patient-centered, uh, that we try to act in, in, in high integrity ways, and, we're, and we try to act with generosity. And I suspect that that uh, coincidence of values is one of the things that made it easy for us to work together, Carl. Um, one question that has come through, I think, connects this conversation we're having about behaviors with the conversation that we had earlier about normalization. And one of the things that has normalized in some of our institutions in healthcare and has come to the fore, I think, with significant strength recently, um, and it's unfortunately it's only recently, or it's unfortunately it's only recently with this significant strength, it's the issue of the um, extent to which we have uh, organizations that are cruel, um, oppressive, uh, exclusive of, of, of groups um, in the United States, I think, and, and in the UK to some extent, in Europe uh, to another extent, um, those groups um, are sometimes defined by racial ethnic characteristics, um, by migratory status, uh, by gender. Um, is there a way of applying normalization process theory to the denormalization of of those um, of those oppressive structures? Mm. I hope so. 
I hope there is. Um, because what I think NPT does is it provides a way of helping us think about how to achieve particular, particular kinds of objectives. Um, I, I, I'd say that an implementation process is defined by the translation of strategic intentions into everyday practices. Um, so if our strategic intention is to um, replace one set of practices or one set of categorizations with another, then implementation science as a field ought to help us to, um, uh, to, to understand and to create route maps and waypoints that we can travel down. But I think the... The, the the more important component of some of what we're talking about is the sort of moral logic that underpins whole systems. Where I, I've been having a debate with um, a, a friend in family practice in the UK where we've been talking about how the shift to providing medical care by telephone and video conferencing during the time of COVID has, has changed relations between doctors and patients. Um, and I, I think what this has brought into sharp relief in, in some contexts is a tendency that was already well, in, well underway to hollow out the bonds of moral obligation between doctors and their patients or between states and citizens and to reduce all of this to an entirely transactional um, state of, of being. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, now, that's what's happened in many other sectors of the economy. Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, our friendly bookshop um, owner has vanished you know, the lovely bookshop over the road from uh, the Marriott Hotel in, in Rochester, the Borders, I think it was, that I really used to enjoy going into. And I got a great pile of books every time I went to, or every time I came to to Rochester, um, uh, uh, where you could actually speak to somebody who was knowledgeable about books, has vanished. And it's been replaced by Jeff Bezos, um, uh, who probably doesn't want to talk to me about what the best sociology book on the market at the moment is. <laughs> um, although perhaps he does, I don't know. Well, we, uh, you know, we have this, um, uh, this is why we revolt, uh, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. Carl, yeah. Is, is, a, is a loss of that, uh, that uh, both the solidarity at the level of the society as a whole and, yeah. and community and, uh, and partnership and friendship mm. and collaboration so uh, yeah, I, I see that. Yeah, that, that it's the sort of undermining of some of those um, uh, some of those features of of the societies that we live in, I think, has been quite interesting, and their replacement by other forms of attachment, I think, is equally interesting. Mm. Um, so. Um, uh, for a long time in the United Kingdom, I would have said it was very bad manners to talk to talk about politics. 
uh, by and large, unless you were with people who were um, in the middle of it. I, I would never, for example, wander around to my parents' neighbours and say, well, how do you feel about the Conservative Party or whatever? It would just... It would have just uh, uh, and, but what Brexit did, and you talked about Brexit, which did a grim night in many respects, leavened only by that lovely conversation and... Uh, I recall an excellent bottle of claret. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, but uh, that created a set of political attachments that weren't about political parties. Um, in much the same way, I think we see happening in the United States, mm-hmm. a set of political attachments that aren't really about being in a political party, but are about objecting to... Um, the way in which politics and economy are organised in mm. in different ways. Um, uh, although the difference between the United Kingdom and the United States, as far as I can see, is that most of the people who are objecting in the United States are carrying automatic weapons um, <laughs> uh, and wearing funny hats. <laughs> Whereas well, it's it's uh, they, both countries are uh, are trying to challenge the, uh, the their first names uh, on a daily basis. Uh, all but all but united. Um, let me let me go back to theory uh, because this series is about care that fits, and uh, one of uh, another phenomenal contribution that you've made, in which we have had a bit of a contribution ourselves in the care unit, has been this theory of uh, of patient work and patient burden and treatment burden. Um, how, how did that come about? It's a natural consequence of looking at the normalization of clinical innovations. If we're going to look at the normalization or implementation of different kinds of clinical interventions, then uh, to fail to look at their impact on the people who they are intended to benefit, I think, is, um, is negligent. Actually, I think uh, uh, everybody wants to believe that um, whatever new machine or decision-making tool or whatever that we introduce um, actually really does improve the lives of its users. But um, uh, very often it's just more work that is difficult to fit in. And I had, um, in 2011, I had a period of very acute and nearly fatal illness that, that meant that I was not well for, for a couple of years. And I really began to think about all of the work that I was having to do for different doctors and you know the immense amount of work that my wife had to do to, um, to sort of keep me tracking back and forth to, um, uh, to hospital and to different clinics and things like this and plugging me into whatever tube people felt like plugging me into that day. Um, uh, and I began to track this. And at the same time, my mother-in-law was um, sort of entering her decline. And one day as a, um, as a sort of um, experiment, as a thought experiment, my, Christine and I, my wife and I, um, plotted out a map of all of the people who were actually contributing to keeping her out of an assisted living facility and sort of mapped what they were doing. And it came to, there were about 30 people involved. 
And I thought, what an enormous amount of work is going on here. Um, actually, much, much more work than would ever have happened if if she had gone into mm. uh, uh, an assisted living facility where, you know, she would have been looked after a bit and, um, you know, uh, and I sort of began to do that for myself as well. And and we kept time diary of my mother's hospitalizations and things like this. And I I just suddenly became aware of the enormous workload of ordinary healthcare, not anything that's innovation, but just if you're if you are involved as a patient or a caregiver in the management, the self-care of of chronic multi-morbid disease, the huge body of work and time that that involves and the way in which that stretches out across networks. And so we wrote this um, and you were a co-author and uh, so were members of your group, um, Casey and um, Nathan Shippey and David Eaton and people like that. We wrote um, uh, 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 a series of, of papers, the cumulative complexity model, the burden of treatment theory model, Casey's uh, bruise model, um, that sort of brought up to date the, the sociological interest that had been very long standing in what people need to do, uh, the work that had come out of Anselm Strauss's research group in San Francisco, you know, which I go back to again and again now for, for all kinds of reasons. But um, And his PhD students, Juliet Corbin and Kathy Chalmers, who died this last year, um, Adele Clark, those kinds of people who were doing these fabulous studies of um, patient life and patient work. And I think what we did was to ask ourselves not about what's the work that you have to do to be a patient but what is the delegated work that comes from a healthcare system and this is I think where your interests in um, uh, uh, sort of industrialized medicine and mine in wireless patients coincides because it is about um, uh, this, that there has been a qualitative change in the nation, the, no, the nature of patienthood, over the past um, three decades, where now it's not simply just about reformulating one's identity in relation to a physical, um, in, a physically embodied getting a new passport for the country of the sick. Sort it's of actually about becoming an unpaid member of the healthcare workforce, um, and and. Um, I, you know, I, you you quite often see this. Uh, the patient is part of the team. Well, the patient is only the part part of the team to the extent that they conform to what the team wants them to do. Um, uh, um, and the patient is only part of the team to the extent which they're able to summon the cognitive resources, the the material equipment, the financial wherewithal and actually the social networks that are needed to support that activity. Um, uh, uh, um, 
And um, that I find, I, 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 I feel very strongly that that's something that needs to be thought about. Um, that innovations are great for healthcare systems, but actually they're not always great for the people who are intended to benefit from them. And so mm. there is this, the Janus-faced nature of, of healthcare innovations. On the one hand, you know, we all, we're all benefiting from things um, that will keep us alive longer and uh, polish our pancreases and all of the other stuff. Um, but at the same time, uh, we're having to give up more and more of our cognitive and informational and material um, capacity to to actually work with that. So the the um, uh, it, it's again there's a unity to this, which is that um, the the burden of treatment uh, theory. Um, one of the contributions I think it makes is it. it brings up a, a lot of uh, attention to the fact that uh, the success of the implementation of treatment plans uh, mm. not only involves the, the mobilization of personal resources, but the, the, the mobilization of people around you that can collaborate and work with you to try yeah. to make that work, right? I mean, once again, the notion of self-management uh, kind of challenged uh, by, by the notion that in fact it, it takes a village um yeah. be a good patient well actually it takes a corporation i think <laughs> um, uh, 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 that that you, you see i think informal work groups with a with a clear division of labor a clear allocation or self-allocation of resources um and sometimes those work groups um bridge informal networks of friends and acquaintances uh, they are um, sort of venn diagrammed into different bits of the healthcare system so mm. throughout um uh, uh throughout my uh, process of illness that i was talking about just now without a doubt the most significant worker was my consultant secretary hmm who who was the font of all knowledge, who rearranged appointments, who made it possible to do one thing or the other. Um, uh, because I was desperate to not stop working. And so I needed the system to make some concessions to me about when I could see doctors and things like this. And I think, you know, being a professor in a medical faculty helps you with that, but not, not as much as you'd think. Um, uh, well, so, so um, this has been a wonderful conversation, Carol, and we're coming to, to the end. And I normally ask, um, um, you know, what are the next steps? But I'm going to make an exception here because there's a question that has come through that relates to advice that you will give to somebody starting a PhD in implementation science. And I was just wondering, you know, as we talk about collaborative groups and uh, and and uh, how success comes through collaboration and working together, um, that we still judge scientists and students individually for their individual accomplishments. You know, people don't 
don't do dissertations um, as, a, as a collaborative endeavor, and we don't we don't evaluate them collaborative. You know, in their ability to actually bring a team together to execute things. We tend to evaluate the individual, test the individual. Um, so, can you can you bring this to, together? What what advice would you give to somebody that's starting? And does it the sociological critique is we value people who conform to a set of norms and conventions, but uh, we think that valuable work is what sits outside of those. So there's a difference between what we value and what we think is valuable. My advice to um, anybody beginning a PhD in any topic is under no circumstances work on a PhD that doesn't interest you. Um, uh, there is no good reason to spend five years of your life dragging away at a topic that you, you don't enjoy. If you don't enjoy that sort of work, don't do it. Pick a, pick a, pick a question that is fundamental. N never do a PhD about evaluating something. Um, uh, uh, who cares whether it works or not? The really important question is why? So fundamental questions are much more important than pragmatic, um, pragmatic ones. Even when the money is for a pragmatic thing, find a fundamental question to ask. You know, I, 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 I was very fortunate that I could absolutely choose the topic of my own PhD. Nobody tried to control it. Nobody could be bothered, actually, to try and control it, as far as I could see. But <laughs> those, were, those were very different times. Um, and um, uh, I was able to read and study what I wanted. So I say, if you're going to do a PhD in implementation science, find, find in it what you believe you are going to love. Because otherwise, it's a hard journey. How do you deal with fear? Because uh, it seems like, you know, if you pursue what you love, sometimes you're going to find yourself in pretty dark places where pe people may not have been, where others may not understand why you're doing it. And and you'll you'll be completely consumed by imposter syndrome. And so, so how do you how do you handle it? Um, uh, well, there are two ways that you can do that. Um, there's some people become entirely narcissistic. Um, uh, which is a very successful strategy, I have to say, in those circumstances. But, you, you know, we all have to... The really important thing to know about any research career, all research careers end in failure, all of them, because at the end of the day, the problems are still there to be solved. We can only make an incremental contribution um, to, to getting there. There... there um, uh, so imposter syndrome is often founded on a view that we should all in some way be outstanding and perfect examples of the research enterprise. None of us can be, you know. Um, failure is the single most important thing that we can do because that tells us um, what we need to learn, what we, how we need to grow, you know. I'm not suggesting that people should fail their PhDs, but I am suggesting that 
um, that people the imposter syndrome is something that is foisted upon us none of us none of us need to be imposters we we do need to have a sense of proportion and we do need to care less about what some people think of us well carl the um the um you the answer to my question as to why the heck work on theory i think you've explained this as um the about the value of fundamentally asking questions of why and yeah. uh and you said in in the preparation meeting that we had something that stuck with me which is that the most practical work that you've done is your work on theory well it is i i mean without a doubt um uh i i've provided and other people um uh very close collaborators who have worked with me on those projects Tracy and Tim and you and Jane Gunn and uh, Francis Mayer, many others, um, have, um, have have made all of that possible. I, th I feel that, uh, you know, in lots of ways I've been blessed. You know, we all suffer from imposter syndrome. There's nobody who's never been anxious about themselves. And believe you me, that there, there are few things that in that that call upon more hubris down upon an author than calling a paper towards a general theory of anything. Um, that that's the point where you discover the true the true meaning of imposter syndrome. <laughs> Carl, um, I can't imagine a better way of finishing the first season of the Kirkas than this conversation with you. It's been a, a lovely, lovely, uh, lovely moment. And uh, uh, I want to uh, thank you very much uh, for your time. And thanks, everyone, for joining us at the Caracas. And I hope we'll see you on uh, season two. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I've enjoyed it, too. It's always such a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And um, so I, I don't actually know who's out there, but hello, everybody. And um, uh, I, I hope I haven't bored you. Um, uh, so. The only question that has been left unanswered, Carl, is why there is a T-Rex behind you. Well, there's, well that's Terry, and um, he, is, uh, uh, he is a monster. We should all have a monster, you know. I, th I think it's very important to keep having toys. I think this is the best way to finish this conversation. Take okay. care, Carl. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.